AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. Well, 2023 was a tough year for the hog market, but there was one shining star. Despite Red Sea shipping issues, the oil market has been range-bound, but what's the outlook for fuel prices for the 2024 planting season? And we'll find out if farmers can really make money in the carbon market. Live from Tuesday the 13th, via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Dan Hellstrom from the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Then it's John Wenzel from Stonex. And later, Mark Herman from the United Soybean Board. Directly following the news, Karen Bonert from Farm Journal's Milk. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. And now, filling in for Chip, please welcome Michelle Rook. Good morning, Michelle. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Davison. Good morning. Well, at least it's not Friday the 13th. And <laughs> are you still 13th. partying from the, yeah, are mm-hmm. you still partying from the Chiefs Super Bowl win or not? You know, we just, we just stay in perpetual party mode here in Kansas City. Do now. you there's, really? Okay. There's so much to say. Just being in the city of fountains is reason enough for me to celebrate. The, the Super Bowl victory is just icing on the cake, you know? Yeah, you guys are already planning for a three-peat, I'm pretty sure. We are. We are. It'd be great um, just because it's kind of the next thing, you know? Yeah, I was going to say that's the next mountain to climb here. Well, and what what celebrity is it going to take to get us there? You know, I really feel like <laughs> don't we, even get me started. We on rode the Taylor that Taylor Swift, Swift wave and it's a beautiful thing to see. You know, young love, you get these millionaires together. Everybody just loves to see that, huh? Well, I will say it has put a different profile and attention on the National Football League, and mm-hmm. it is advertising they could have never paid for, so they couldn't That's have true. afforded it. That's true. That's absolutely true. Man, you've got a you have got our show stacked floor to ceiling today. This is great. You you bet. We're going to talk about 2023 pork and beef exports, and so we're going to talk about kind of the outlook for the fuel market here yeah. as we get into the planting season, and then. You know, the carbon market's been kind of called the Wild West. Well, we mm-hmm. have uh, one gentleman joining us today, Matt Herman, who is kind of an expert on carbon and uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. You bet. I'm looking forward well, to kick- it. Yeah, it's going to mm-hmm. be a good show, but kick us off with the news, Davis. Will do, Michelle. Uh, we'll begin with the National Weather Service weather outlook. There's some pirate language in the first uh, sentence here. A strong nor'easter to impact portions of the northern mid-Atlantic and southern New England today with areas of heavy snow, strong winds, and coastal flooding. A new storm system will arrive across the northwest over the next couple of days, which will bring locally heavy rain and mountain snowfall. I have uh, made contact with my daughter who's in school out in the D.C. area. She says it's snowing there, Michelle. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that shuts the whole town down, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Senate early this morning passed a $95 billion foreign aid package to send money to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. The vote was 70 to 29 and includes $60 billion for Ukraine. The bill will now go to the House, but Michelle House Speaker Mike Johnson Monday evening issued a statement essentially saying the current Senate aid approach is dead on arrival. 
without significant border security protection language. That's that, that yeah. border is the sticking point here, Michelle. I know it has been for several weeks now. Yeah. Well, the Congressional Budget Office projects federally subsidized crop insurance will cost an additional twenty seven point seven billion dollars over the next decade, with the government covering roughly sixty two percent of premiums. Crop insurance costs are estimated to rise by 29% to nearly $125 billion for the decade ending in 2033. Despite this increase, USDA spending on crop and livestock subsidies and land stewardship programs is expected to remain stable. And i got to say there are echoes of the need for the Farm Bill in this whole little paragraph here, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the annual inflation rate in the United States fell back to 3.1% in January, following a brief increase to 3.4% in December. But that came in higher than forecasts of 2.9%. Compared to the previous month, the CPI edged up 0.3%. That's the most in four months. And above forecasts, also, annual core inflation held steady at 3.9%. Compared to expectations, it would slow to 3.7%. Yeah, and the stock market does not like it this morning. It's it been down pretty hard here with ideas. Maybe the Fed will have to hold rates higher for longer. Yeah, my sofa is looking ugly right now. Well, in other news, the Biden administration's trade policy is under scrutiny due to emails revealing how Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Khan and left-wing groups influenced U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. This according to the Wall Street Journal. Their article claims Ty's actions criticized by business groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce undermine efforts to protect intellectual property and promote digital trade benefiting various industries. Boy, trade in uh, international trade under scrutiny here. This is a really interesting story, Michelle. Yeah, it is. And, you know, when you look at trade policy, it does filter into exports. We're going to ask Dan Hallstrom just a little bit more about their take on whether the administration has had an aggressive enough agenda on trade yeah. this uh, this administration. Well, fuel retailers are pressuring Senator Tom Carper of Delaware, who chairs the Environment Committee and is not seeking re-election, to support legislation allowing a year-round sale of E15. They argue that such a move would promote environmentally friendly fuel, lower cost for consumers, and encourage investments in lower carbon transportation energy. And finally yeah, and here, upper, oh, yes, go ahead, Michelle. I was just going to say, we need this E15 thing taken oh. care of here soon. Yep. And finally here, operations at the port of Antwerp, one of Europe's biggest container ports, was seriously impacted on Tuesday as hundreds of farmers on tractors blocked the roads around the port. And this also, police in India have used tear gas against farmers marching toward New Delhi as thousands demand a guaranteed minimum price for their produce. Michelle. Hey, thanks, Davis. Well, right now we bring in Karen Boner, Dairy Editor, Editorial Director for Farm Journal. Good morning, Karen. Hi, Michelle. Well, we're going to talk, or you're going to talk a little bit about dairy finances today. And Karen, how important are balance sheets and talking to your lender in that vein? Well, import, very, very important. It always is interesting how Valentine's Day and Tax Day for farmers kind of uh, fall on the same time frame, or at least for our farm it does. And I might sound like a broken record, Michelle, but conducting monthly cash flow projections is essential, even when not as much cash is coming in. The, my leading financial expert that I often talk to, Gary Saporsky, he advises producers to look at the, at the last three years at, at both the inputs, the costs, and the expense side, but also look at the current mar 
market conditions to try to put together a projection. And likely, Michelle, it'll be wrong, but at least it's a plan in place. Um, shortage of cash, cash will, um, you know, underscore the importance of having these regular meetings with your lender. Often it was like once a year or maybe tw twice a year, but now with so much volatility and low prices, it needs to be much more uh, frequent, if you will. Yeah, you can't just do these budgets and then put them away for the year. You got to be looking at them on a routine basis, don't you? Absolutely. And and money will be tight. You know, yeah. it likely is. For our farm, quarter one generally is not fun. Um, and this year will be no different. But just having those conversations, I, I would say with your lender is a must, but keeping a close eye on the operating loan as it's likely going to grow compared to, to last year or the year prior, but also bringing in other leading experts for your team that can help you kind of look at your financials just to, to have a pulse on where you're at and where you're going. Some great advice. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Karen. Absolutely. Karen Boner, Dairy Editorial Director for Farm Journal. Well, when we come back here on AgriTalk, Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of U.S. Meat Export Federation, is with us to wrap up 2023. Great news for pork and even beef exports. That's coming up on AgriTalk. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. You're listening to AgriTalk, where the conversation begins. Join us at 855-4-TALK-AG. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory this morning. And what a pleasure to have with us Dan Hallstrom. He is president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation joining us this morning. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Hey, well, hot off the presses, or I should, I guess that's probably not the appropriate term to use for a broadcaster, but uh, we have meat export totals out for 2023. And wow, some great news for pork exports, right? Yeah, pork um, continued the momentum we saw through most of last year with a very big December. Um, we were up 10% at almost 270,000 tons in December. And uh uh, really led by the same uh, group of countries that had been leading it all year, led by Mexico uh, and Central America. So uh, Latin America continues to be the dominant theme on the pork side. But uh, in addition to that, we saw a bit of a rebound out of uh, Asia as well for pork with uh, big numbers for Korea and pretty decent numbers for Japan. So really uh, the theme of broad-based growth on pork across many different countries uh, continues to pay uh, dividends uh, uh, as we ended up 2023. 
So the record buying that we're seeing out of Mexico, Dan, is that tied to USMCA and our trade policy with them, or is it just their appetite for our U.S. pork? I think it's all of the above. I think the USMCA, the agreement, has solidified the relationship. I think uh, we look at the exchange rate and the, and the peso has actually been a little stronger against the dollar. And that combined with, uh, you know, the growing middle class and, and the uh, the uh, the full acceptance and integration of U.S. pork and beef, for that matter, we haven't gotten on beef yet, but beef had a big year as well in New Mexico. So yeah. I think uh, it's a good example of uh, our business hitting on all cylinders in all segments, retail, food service, uh, and, that, and into the further processing sector as well. And it really gets driven home in terms of the importance of meat exports and pork exports here in particular. When you look at the export value per pig slaughter, that also hit a record, didn't it? It sure did. And, and December December came in at almost $71 a head, and that brought wow. the uh, the record for the year up to just under $64 a head, which was a, which was a new record. So I think uh, from, from that standpoint, uh, the importance of, of this business cannot be, uh, really cannot be overstated. No doubt. And when we look at exports, um, the percentage of the exports total for the year for pork actually was what, I think you told me like 29%, which is a really high level, isn't it? Yeah, it finished the year. Uh, we had a big, in December, we almost hit 32%, including wow. variety meats. And that brought up the total to just under 30s, like 29.6, I think, was the number, which was, I believe, another uh, record. So almost 30%. You bet. So how much of the $64 um, pig per slaughter export value was variety meats versus other cuts? I believe uh, that came in at about eleven dollars per head on the, on a, a little bit above that on the uh, a new record on the variety meats as well and and it's not once again that's also broad based it's it's Mexico it's Central America it's China so many countries contributing um, to the uh, to the value on the variety meat side as well. But a lot of times we talk about Mexico being a big ham market, right? Right. Yeah. About. About half of our hams uh, are exported from the U.S., of which the number one buyer by far is Mexico. But the interesting thing is that uh, I think we've seen some particular growth in some of the other subprimals. And uh, hmm. we've been doing a lot of work with the help of National Pork Board, uh, a lot of work on the loin down in Mexico and in Central America as well. Uh, the shoulder continues to see growth. So while hams are a big item, it's not the only item contributing. It, we're seeing more and more of a cross-section of that pork carcass going into uh, Mexico. Well, it's good news and what otherwise was a pretty horrible year for pork producers in 2023. So at least we had some highlights um, to talk about. All right, let's move on to beef exports. Um, down a little bit, but that's in comparison to 2022, which was actually a record, right? Correct. Yeah, we're comparing against a very uh, high base. Uh, but as it turned out, you know, Mexico, or I should say, uh, December turned out to be a pretty good, darn good month as well for beef. Um, while we were down a couple of percent year on year off of that record, it was still a big month at about 109,000 tons. And the value was up about 10% at uh, $860 million. So, uh, 
Um, once again, uh, Mexico, Central America, uh, common theme, very good on the beef side as well as it has been most of the year. And, uh, and, and the other positive that I take away from December data is that we started to see some life on beef out of, uh, out of Asia, in particular China uh, and um, China and Korea showed really good uh, results. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm thinking that this is maybe the first step in a food service rebound. Um, you know, we have a long way to go and we're not anywhere back to normal, but, but this is a good first step because retail continues to be, to be solid. But uh, we're starting to, I think, with tourism increasing, uh, maybe this is the start of some momentum on food service as we go into 2024 for beef. Well, that would be really optimistic. Oh, so, so you talk about the setback in 2023. Was it due to the high beef prices, the higher dollar value, or just less supply? I think um, I think it's a combination. I think it's less supply for sure. And I also think... Uh, in the case of especially Japan, the strong U.S. dollar, we're we're hovering near 150, uh, 150 yen to the dollar today. Three years ago, it was closer to 110. So um, that that definitely has an impact. Um, but that being said, um, I think that uh, you know we're we're seeing some signs um, that that point to a more positive outlook um, on on beef into Asia. And one one is. The, the majority of the decrease is frozen product and frozen commodity products. So, for example, short plates are down pretty big, a uh, very common item, but but it's volume, right? The large percentage of the short plates are exported. So if your beef production is down, of course, that's going to be impacted. The area of the, of the, of the mix that looks more optimistic is the chilled beef area. And on, on chilled beef, our program business tends to be our higher value, higher margin business, the 52-week-a-year business. We're, our market share um, in 2023 actually went up slightly uh, in uh, Korea, in Taiwan, and in China. So three of your four markets, your big Asian markets, saw our market share grow slightly on a very high-end uh, segment of our business even though production was down. So I think that uh, that's a positive that we really can continue to uh, focus on. You bet. Beef export value per head of fed slaughter, what was that like for 2023? So uh, once again, December was a big month on beef, similar to pork. We were at almost $432 a head for December. And that brought the year-to-date number up to about $397 per head. So, uh, so very, very significant on the value side. And, and once again, I think this kind of points towards uh, potentially some momentum to grow that value uh, as we head into uh, 2024. So if we talk about other headwinds, maybe for 2024, we're hearing about all these shipping issues, including in the Red Sea. Are they impacting meat exports or our ability to move things through the supply chain? Yeah, I think um, I think yes. You know, anytime you have a disruption like that, it's it's not only the Suez Canal uh, uh, and the Red Sea, but it's also the Panama Canal is uh, is another right. area of the world. So we need to keep an eye on this because you know it may we may not have a lot of particular exports going through 
uh, especially the Panama Canal, but but it affects the whole supply chain. And, and these vessels, they go in a in a circle, basically around the world in some way, shape, or form. So if these if these uh, disruptions last for any length of time, it will catch up and and in, yeah. and in fact impact the whole supply chain. I think to date the impact has been minimal, but especially the Red Sea situation with all the product going. Uh, from 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 the e from the west to the east, um, particularly impactful into that Middle East region potentially. So, uh, and, and if you have to go around the cone of Africa, that's that's not a very good uh, not a very good option no. in terms of time and, and of course added costs. So we need to watch it close. Last question for you: We talked about USMCA and the importance on pork exports. The ag community, I know, has been concerned with the lack of trade agenda by the administration and the lack of new FTAs. Are we seeing that in export data, or just our ability to grow? Or I think, um, yeah, I think the ability to grow long term. Uh, yeah, it would be nice to have a, a more activity in this area in terms of new agreements, whether they're bilateral or multilateral. Um, I think the USMCA is a good example of an agreement to, to, for the beef and pork industries has worked very, very well. So, uh, yeah, we would be in favor of uh, getting a little more aggressive in certain parts right. of the world. One area of the world that comes to mind is Vietnam, for example. Yeah, you bet. All right. Dan Hallstrom, president and CEO of U.S. Meat Export Federation. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're going to take a look at markets. When we come back, we're going to talk fuel markets as well with John Wenzel with StoneX. That's coming up here on AgriTalk. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. And joining us, editor of Pro Farmer Brian Grady. And Brian, we're seeing kind of a mixed trade in the grains, but soybeans are not really able to extend the gains that we saw yesterday. Now, uh, soybeans a little bit weaker, Michelle, along with uh, the meal market and soy oil. So the soy complex is, is generally under pressure aside from March uh, meal futures, which are just poking above unchanged. Um, but, uh, you know, corn market uh, trading about a penny higher here yeah. in the face of strong gains in the U.S. dollar. And, and uh, SRW wheat futures, they're mostly firmer as well. Um, but that uh, the dollar strength is really um, limiting buyer interest in HRW and, and spring wheat futures at the but moment. But is that mostly short covering there, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, nothing, nothing more than corrective buying at this point in time. Uh, the funds, as we know, uh, have just continued to pile into the short side of these markets and, and uh, uh, heavily weighted uh, on the short side. And, and so they probably need to cover some shorts. 
And cattle setting back here is that routine profit taking, you think, or are we watching what's going on with the plunge in the stock market? Yeah, so I think outside markets are having an influence, uh, but probably in the grand scheme of things, it's just a pullback. Uh, you know, we, we saw some of that yesterday. Uh, we're coming off of, of gains in the uh, cash market for the fourth straight week, and, and uh, so the packer margins are negative, highly negative, and, and uh, it's probably a situation where they won't chase after cash cattle aggressively if they don't have to this week. And, and so uh, I think there's some trepidation there on traders' part uh, and wondering whether the cash market will extend higher for a fifth straight week. Yeah, Hog's going to be able to hold on to these gains here in the nearbys? Oh, we'll see. Um, you know, the cash index uh, is still climbing, but, uh, you know, we don't want to get too far out in front with the futures. All right, Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer here on Agritalk. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. On your favorite radio station or your preferred digital device, AgriTalk is live every weekday. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory this morning. Uh, we're going to talk energy markets here with John Wenzel with StoneX. He's Senior Risk Management Consultant for Energy. And good morning, John. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Michelle. Well, let's talk nice about. Nice to be here. You bet. Crude oil <laughs> prices. Let's talk about those. We've been in about what I would say a ten dollar trading range for the last several weeks. Um, you know that market, I guess, has been a little surprising that we haven't seen more of a chart breakout, especially with what we see with the Middle East conflict and what's going on in the Red Sea with shipping issues. Yeah, you're right. Uh, when we started the year. You know, the outlook was there's a lot of different oil projects, multi-year projects coming online this year. We have the Trans Mountain Canada or, or Pipeline in Canada, uh, Guyana projects and projects in Brazil, just bringing a lot of production. So, you know, we uh, temporarily tagged $60 crude oil at the beginning of the year. But, um, you know, everybody's seen the news. The, the script has been flipped with the mm -hmm. Red Sea shipping disruption. Um, not only that, though, what's really... Uh, uh, a little disturbing for the oil markets is how the U.S. has, uh, you know, had to kind of combat uh, some of the Iranian aggressions uh, in the region. And I think that's just as important as the Red Sea shipping disruption, because the U.S. Uh, specifically, you know, the recent administration kind of they've they've taken a little bit of uh, what's a fair term, uh, just they, they've let they've let some of the sanctions loosen. So. Iran has increased their oil sales from about 2 million barrels per day to about 3.1. You know, we expect that they could do even more. Um, but some of the recent events has us kind of worried um, that they're going to be tightening up those sanctions and going to the different countries and buyers and saying, hey, you know, this it's the rules still here. You're not supposed to transact with these guys. Um, so we'll see. You know, there's been some pressure there with sanctions on Iran and sanctions on, on um, also Russia. Um, Russia has been having a little tougher time getting some of their oil bought and sold in the global markets. So that's kind of what's, you know, helped us kind of get out of that sixties range. Um, if peace breaks out though, uh, the, the fundamentals underneath the oil markets, at least right now, it, it pretty much a consensus is there's going to be more oil production coming online than increased oil right. demand this year. So, 
In fact, U.S. production is actually above pre-COVID levels again, isn't it? It is. And they, it's kind of interesting because uh, the U.S. oil producer is not only resilient, they're getting more and more efficient. And last year, um, they exceeded their growth, you know, above all forecasts. And kind of the underlying story is the, they're, they're actually drilling just a little bit less, but getting more. And if that happens this year, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I was kind of before the Red Sea shipping and some of the, you know, us attacks on Iran, I, we're looking at that and we kind of see if the U.S. oil producer can kind of pull out. It's not really a, a rabbit out of the hat, but it's, it's normal course of business for them. They get smarter and better. Um, and if they added a decent amount of production this year, we could see oil prices back in the fifties. Now I'm not, I'm not <laughs> forecasting that because the, the turn of events has kind of made us see that it, it's not as simple as that, right? Cause us oil right. production could, um, it, it actually could be stagnant. And there's some other things, um, that kind of point to the, you know, us oil production, not really kind of taking off and just being level this year. If, if that's the case, you know, then the oil markets fundamentally, if you didn't have uh, some of these other disruptions, w- would be kind of be trying to balance on, is there going to be, you know, global oil demand to grow like it did last year? Or will it slow down? Yeah, it's been interesting to watch, though. It almost feels like we need a little more war premium in this market. Can we talk about diesel prices, though, specifically, you know, last year we had such tight supplies. How tight are supplies this year? Are we going to have a better situation going into the planting season? Uh, Supplies are really good. In fact, if uh, most people, you know, if you go from Ohio all the way over to Montana and then, uh, you know, on down, if if that encompasses most of the listeners, they've uh, enjoyed, uh, you know, a month or two where basis, you know, we it's easy to think about basis on crops, but uh, usually it's basis. The discount to the futures isn't that much on fuels, uh, but it's been 40, 50 cents for all of uh, pad two, which is the Midwest uh, in the, you know, our Eastern side of uh, ag production. So people have been able to get really um, good discounts on fuel. And I say basis has been doing the work what the futures can't do because futures are more of the global price. But um, what's, what's really happened is fuel prices have softened a lot. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for a recent uh, power outage at uh, BP Whiting, Indiana's, they lost a huge refinery, about 430,000 barrels per day of production. And that's kind of a, that tips the scales from too much diesel production in the upper in, in the, you know, that region to not enough. So we're, now there's a lot of excess inventory in that region that's that's starting to get you know worked through the system and prices are coming back um they're they're a lot higher i'm people will see that um but that's just an ebb and flow that there's nothing that the end user can really do when you have you know what what uh, typically would be a period when there's a lot of stock building in january of diesel uh, then all of a sudden you have a refinery go down for unforeseen circumstances. And this one's a big one. So, but it's going to yeah. come back up and uh, it, it shouldn't be an issue by the time planning season goes. I expect, uh, you know, people to have good pricing as we go through the year. All right. And it's going to stay that way all through the growing season, you think, then once that rebound happens? 
the rebound uh i i think they'll have good pricing you know if if we were to you know think about budgeting um we're kind of easing back at least i am in my mind for customers where instead of you know thinking you should get some prices locked in um i think the threat of tighter sanctions on iran and uh russia will you know possibly push prices higher as well as if we see we've seen a really strong demand not just of china but india and that whole asian uh, pacific economies jump out of the gate and they've done a lot of january buying that might be just kind of a a one off but if if that continues through the year um there's potential for higher oil prices so um okay. a, a a balanced approach where customers lock in maybe half their usage and um, one thing we've done with us, uh, because we're using more futures than a cash contract for folks, um, if it turns out, you know, we need to uh, sell that futures and, uh, you know, if we buy something for the spring, we'll, um, or we, we can always, uh, you know, roll it forward and keep that position on for next spring and then just take the cheaper cash fuel. Um, I like that strategy now for for users who who want to control their budget, but they're a little bit worried. And, and in that respect, when you go buy your fuel and try to, you know, control your fuel budget, it's not an all in thing. Right. You, know, you, you can take it in pieces and, and try to just keep it in line so you don't have as many surprises. You bet. <laughs> Yeah, no good advice there. So we have about two and a half minutes left in our conversation. And we have a topic that you have recently wrote about um, that you say is a little controversial. And hopefully we have enough time to get into this. But the death of the work truck, um, you said there's new <laughs> limits being set for greenhouse gas emissions that basically is like a de facto ban on the internal combustion engine. What does that mean for especially agriculture, but just society in general yeah well i'm throwing my own title on that the death of a work truck but really okay. uh, um um what what happened and but i, I think it's important and and, and uh listeners would want to know is that you know the epa is in charge of setting cafe standards we've seen that before um and we've kind of been through a cycle with, with the last uh president where they've kind of eased back on those um so as as this administration has kind of got geared up and, and they're really concentrating on, you know, how can we make EVs uh, the part of the fabric, really, of automobiles, um, I, I guess, which is fine. But obviously, we're petroleum. <laughs> I, I advise fuel dealers. So we, we'd like to keep the, the internal combustion engine around. But but I don't know if the EPA and NHTSA, the people who set those rules, um, have the same feeling that they do not like the internal combustion engine. In fact, they've... Uh, uh, last year, they had proposed rules, and then they, they actually took comments on setting some new uh, greenhouse gas emissions for uh, not only cars, you know, but also uh, trucks. pickup trucks. And yeah. when I, they say light duty vehicles, but when I think of a full ton, you know, dually pickup truck, you know, th that has to get, when you look at the standard that they propose, and I actually expect this to be issued here in a couple months, the spring or summer. Spring or it's summer, gonna, okay. It's going to come out, and the new standards are going to have to move. Um, you know, a one-ton dually pickup truck, the fleet average they sell is going to have to get 37 miles per gallon on diesel. That's That technology isn't there. That's a heavy lift, <laughs> yeah, um, literally. 
But what they say, the reason they think the industry can get there is they project in the cars, it's actually over 100, but they think 70% of new cars will be electric and 40% yeah. of new trucks. And I, I just scratch my head because when we look at, you know, uh, 30 some percent of households lives in apartments, right? Or places that like, how is every homeowner going to be charging their car electric? Uh, but not only that, like most of the listeners, you know, if you go to haul a trailer, you know, there's some good EV products for pickups out there. I'm not saying there isn't, uh, but I just, when I say death of the work truck, are we? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. This is a controversial subject and it's going to continue to be that way. Okay. But I appreciate, well, thank you for your time. <laughs> appreciate your insight. John Wenzel with StoneX uh, joining us here to talk about the energy markets. When we come back, this dovetails right into our next conversation, greenhouse gas emissions and the carbon market. Is it an opportunity for producers? That's coming up. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. When news breaks, the newsmakers talk about it on AgriTalk with Chip Flory. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Brook in for Chip Flory this morning. And back with us, Matt Herman, Iowa Soybean Association Chief Officer of Demand and Advocacy to talk about some of the basics of carbon trading in this carbon market. And Matt, I know this is... Uh, Topic that producers have a lot of questions about. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michelle. And I'm happy to talk about this today. I've been doing interviews all week about Dicamba. So this is a nice change of pace. <laughs> yeah, I should just ask you quick before we get into that. Is there any changes on what's going on with Dicamba? I know we're looking for either an appeal or trying to get EPA to put a order out there to allow Dicamba that's in the system to be you know, use this season? Are we making any headway? Nope. You've got the update. We're still waiting. We're asking for yes. the stay and appeal. And we're also asking for that existing stocks order. So uh, we'll keep you guys up to speed as soon as we hear back from the EPA on this. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a big topic and a big story. Okay. Let's talk about the carbon market. First of all, everybody wants to know, you know, this has been called the wild west, the carbon trading market, but is there money to be made for farmers in the carbon market? Well, I think there's certainly money to be made. The question I think right now is, is kind of who's making the money and how quickly can we mature this market and ensure that farmers are the actually the ones making 
the fair amount of money here because, you know, in my mind, they're the ones that are going to be putting in all the work and time yeah, and absolutely. labor and taking the risk to actually create the outcomes that are associated with these credits. You bet. Um, you know, I think there's this big divergence we have right now in the market. Uh, we see what I'll call the voluntary market starting to mature quite a bit in my mind. You know, for the last 10 or so years, farmers were helping uh, do these conservation practices and minting what we would generally call offsets, these carbon offset reductions. And those were sold to companies totally outside the value chain, like an airline or a Microsoft, who might want to offset their carbon emissions. And now that aspect of the industry is maturing into what we would call insets, meaning that it's really now the final purchasers of those commodities or those ingredient manufacturers, like your food and bev companies, you can imagine them, who want to buy those lower carbon footprint commodities. So you can think of it like they're bundling together the soybean or the corn and the carbon credit so they can show to their customers and their investors uh, that they're doing lower carbon activities. And I think that's a really good sign for that side of the market. And then, of course, you know, I think our farmers hear a lot about the potential for these carbon markets to come from the federal government and the Inflation Reduction Act and these biofuel tax credits. Absolutely, which we can talk about as well. As far as measuring carbon, how do we measure carbon on a farm and get credit for the no-till practices, the cover crops farmers are doing? Yeah, so largely, I think when we talk about measurement, it's really, it comes down to, the other M word is modeling, right? It's so we're estimating a change in the carbon footprint in a production system. And so sometimes we can go out there and actually conduct physical measurements, right? Like we can take a bulk soil sample and understand the organic matter that's in there. But other times we have to estimate uh, the emissions that are coming on and off a field based on, say, inputs like how much fertilizer is going down or how much biomass or how much corn was taken on or off the field. Those types of things ultimately help us do the math to figure out how much carbon is coming or leaving that that field and is associated with that bushel of corn of soybeans. Absolutely. So a question I hear farmers ask as well, if we lower carbon in the atmosphere, will it lower their yield since plants need carbon for photosynthesis? Yeah, I've heard that one quite a bit. So yeah, I've I've never seen so let me back up. You know, certainly plants eat CO2, they like it, it helps photosynthesis. I've never seen, and I'm sure they're out there, some studies where we've done some growth chambers to look at, you know, seed yield and genetics, genetics on yield versus higher CO2 concentrations and trying to disentangle those variables. But at the highest level, I think the one thing I'd want to say is, you know, atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide are, you know, 25, 30% higher than they are were pre-industrial levels. And we knew, we know we could grow things then. And nobody's talking about taking these levels to zero. They're trying to get back down to that pre-industrial baseline. And so when I talk to farmers and they express this concern, I try to help them think, you know, we're not taking it to zero. We're taking it to these pre-industrial levels. And in my opinion is, I don't think we'll see a drawdown to that type of pre-industrial level until, you know, my grandchildren, basically. Um, so this is something that it's not going to happen overnight. And we'd be able to look at and see impacts and changes to yield and these types of things as we try to bring these higher levels now back down to pre-industrial levels when we were growing crops then. All right. So that's individual farms are one way to maybe do carbon trading, but we also can do it through 
some of the renewable diesel, the SAF plants and whatnot, right? Yeah, so that's a really exciting area, I think, for this, uh, and I'll call them broadly environmental markets for farmers. You know, I talked a little bit about uh, the voluntary market for these food and beverage companies, but what we see now with the Inflation Reduction Act and tax credits for sustainable aviation fuel and starting next year for on-road biofuels is that it's likely, and I, I want to underscore likely, that farmers will be able to participate in these markets by modeling, you know, estimating the carbon intensity, the carbon footprint of their corn and soybeans. And so that when they go to market that, uh, there could be a market depending on their, 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 who they're selling to for that carbon attribute alongside the grain. And I, I really underscore May here because we've seen some basic guidance from the Internal Revenue Service back before Christmas on this, but they're, they're supposed to give us that final guidance here, uh, March 1st, I believe, is the statutory deadline. And that was when we'll really know uh, if we're going to be able to take this down to the farm and if there's going to be money there for farmers to make. All right. Well, something we're going to be watching March 1st. Hopefully they'll use the GREEP model. But then even then, we're going to still have to probably have um, a little bit more work to do to get some of these carbon intensity scores like on ethanol and SAF down to the levels needed to get a subsidy, right? Yes, yes. It's going to take everything from on-farm practices to upgrades at these biofuel plants to get down there. And maybe even the carbon pipeline? That's a significant part for the ethanol yeah. jet folks. All right. Well, something that's controversial, obviously, but we can talk about that maybe another day. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the update today. Thanks, Michelle. Have a nice morning. You too. Matt Herman with the Iowa Soybean Association Chief Officer for Demand and Advocacy. Well, join us back here this afternoon. I'll be hosting AgriTalk PM Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing will be joining us then. For Davis Michelson, I'm Michelle Rook.